Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. So I'm delighted to say I have on the show with me today someone who has been a mentor, a personal mentor of mine for some time. Now, as I have navigated my own personal journey in entrepreneurship, I've had the same ups and downs, the challenges, the opportunities, the great days and the bad days that we all have. And I think that's part of the game of being an entrepreneur. If it was all easy, we wouldn't necessarily do it. Or I don't think we'd all stick at it because as humans, we need to have challenge. We need to face adversity from time to time. And it's really how we tackle those different challenges that creates, in my opinion, the, the joy that comes from the achievement and the success. So with me on the show today is Dr. John Demartini. Now, if you haven't heard of Dr. John Demartini, let me give you a bit of, bit of profile here. He is a human behavior expert. He is a polymath. If you don't know what that is, I suggest you Google it. He is an internationally published best-selling author, and he is the founder, the creator of the Demartini Method, which we're going to get into today. What I particularly like about John is he has studied all elements of human behavior. He has helped me personally overcome, deal with the things that happen around being an entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is how I show up, the impact I want to make, my values, my bigger mission, how I choose to serve, and importantly, the key relationships that I need and want in my life. Now, as business owners, as entrepreneurs, we sometimes forget about those things. We sometimes think that they're maybe not as important because we are so focused on building a great business. But let me tell you from, again, personal experience that if you don't understand those things, if you don't understand how you're acting in certain situations, it can come back and get you as it did to me a number of years back before I changed the trajectory of my life. Well, the perception of loss of that which you seek or the perception of gain of that which you try to avoid generates voids that drive value. So we're going to go through today John's story, how he became who he is today, and that is just an incredible story in its own right. I'm not going to spoil it here. We're going to talk about his mission to share knowledge and wisdom to empower people to become the master of their own life and destiny. And I think most importantly, we're going to get into some practical tips that you can live by today that you can take away from this episode so that you can achieve your full potential. I define fear as a feedback mechanism to let you know that you're pursuing something that's not objective, not congruent, and a bit of a fantasy that needs refining to turn it into a true goal and objective. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerful conversation with Dr. John Demartini. I know you are going to get a lot out of this episode. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for another week. You can tell by the tone of my voice already, there is a, an air of excitement in the room because I have someone on the show today that I have followed for some time. I'm going to tell a bit of that story today, but I have with me Dr. John Demartini. Now, if you haven't heard of Dr. John Demartini, he is a world-renowned human behavior expert. He has literally written heaps of books. He has read tens of thousands of books. He's considered a polymath, an absolute um, expert on how we do things, why we do things, and more importantly, the things that are stopping us creating a life of our dreams and crafting our destiny. So it is my absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, John. Thank you for having me. 
gosh, looking forward to it. Right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna share a bit of my journey, and then I, then I want you to kind of you know share your background a little bit with the listeners today. But um, I I sort of got into the world of of let's call it personal development or exploring kind of what I wanted my life to be like through Tony Robbins, which was an interesting experience in its own right. There was a lot of dancing and high fiving and things like that. But it didn't take too long before I met some very interesting people, people that you have worked with. And it was almost like all roads led to Dr. John Martini, And I say that with a huge amount of respect because these are people who made changes, transformations in their life, which are just off the charts. I won't mention their names on the show, but I know one in particular was living in his car in a huge amount of debt and now was making tens of millions of dollars in his business in only a few short years. Just incredible stuff. So I want to kind of get into some of these things today with you. But before we do that, John, can you just share a little bit about your story and your background and how you got into this, how you found this to be your, your life's work? Big question. <laughs> yeah, I'll do the brief version, I guess. <clears throat> I, uh, I had learning difficulties and, as a child. I had a speech impediment. And I was told in first grade that I would never be able to read or write or probably never communicate. I only made it through school with it by asking smart kids questions and listening to what they had to say because reading wasn't working. I didn't really read till I was 18. I became a street kid at 13, left home a street kid, and um, found surfing uh, a, a hobby uh, because I like the beaches. I like bikini locations. I get, I get you. I'm wearing, so, I'm wearing my Rip Curl like surfing T-shirt in your honor because I knew you were into surfing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I lived in the beaches of Texas, which wasn't the surf capital. I went at 14. I hitchhiked out to California and down into Mexico to surf. 15. I moved over to the North Shore of Oahu. I lived under a bridge, then a park bench, then a bathroom, then an abandoned car, and finally a tent. I kept social climbing. <laughs> I was a surfer, long-haired hippie surfer guy that surfed 11 hours a day and got pretty good at it. I was never in the A group, but I, I think I was in the B group. And we got in, I got to surf three surf movies and a surfing book and some magazines and, you know, a few things. Wasn't any money in those days. This back late 60s, early 70s. So I nearly died at 17 from cyanide and strychnine poisoning. And that's a long story, but more than I can say here. But, And that led me to a health food store. A lady found me almost dead in a tent. And that led wow. me to a health food store to get decent food. She was a health fanatic. <clears throat> that led me to a yoga class. And there's where I met a gentleman named Paul C. Bragg, who one night in one lecture with one really empowering uh, message inspired me that night to believe that I could possibly overcome my learning difficulties and someday read and write and someday be intelligent. Now I was intelligent as far as surfing and I was learning how to make surfboards. And I assumed I was going to be a surfboard maker and live on the North shore the rest of my life. <clears throat> but little did I know when I went to that class that my life was going to change. And that was the night that I had a dream and I had a vision. I actually, can I show you the picture? Yeah, you I can. had a vision. I had a vision that night that was 
so inspiring. I was in tears for 20 minutes. And uh, I had this epiphany. And much many years later, I was speaking in Melbourne, Australia. And a painter, a famous painter came up to me and it was in the audience. He said, you know, your message, your story was so inspiring. I'd love to paint that. I'd like to paint what, I, what you described that vision was that night. So I said, great. He offered to do that. And this is what he painted. Oh, wow. Wow. So time check on this. When was this? This is the very beginning, really, of when you were kind of still in Hawaii. I, I was 17, but he put my body at the age that he met me on the balcony. But see, I saw myself walking out onto a balcony and speaking to about a million people. See if I can get that. Yeah, just for everyone listening to this who's not watching on YouTube, there's a picture of, of Dr. John here literally addressing, and I can't see where it is specifically, people. but there are literally millions. It's like, it's huge. So this is, this is really jumping into your future, right? Yeah. And what it was is an iconic building from every major city around the world, because I wanted to reach the world with a message in every major city. So that was, wow. that was the dream. So that came to me that night. And it was a very epiphany vision, as you can see in that picture. And this guy painted it <clears throat> from a talk I did. I was, I was, I, I, I started to share the vision. I closed my eyes. I got tears in my eyes, and I was just there, reliving that moment. And he painted that. And when I saw that, it came to me. It's five foot by four foot. It's a big painting. It was sent to my office in Houston as a gift. What do you think happens? Wow. I mean, like the gift's incredible, but 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 the vision's even more incredible here. And also the fact, I mean, you're even wearing the clothes you're wearing now in that in that picture. But more importantly, yeah. what do you think happens at that point? You know, because you're a surfer, obviously you've had this experience that's taken you to this this retreat, this event, this yoga experience. You've met this guy, and then you've had this vision, and obviously you've created that vision. But what do you when you look back and you study what, what actually happened? It was probably a dissociative identity disorder. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot who I was asking the question to for a second then. <laughs> of course, you've studied this in depth, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was, I think what it was is because I didn't think I was ever going to be able to read and write and speak properly. I, I went to a speech pathologist when I was a year and a half old till I was four. So I didn't think I was going to be able to pronounce and speak I mean, when people hear me now, they go, oh, he's, he's gifted or something. This is a lot of work right. to be able to speak clear. But, and reading, I, I had to, I had a lot of work to, to get the reading process going. But I, I saw it as a vision and it was so lucid. It was so lucid. You didn't question it. Mm. It was a really powerful moment. Do you think? And it wasn't just me. It wasn't me. And <clears throat> we had 35 people sitting on a wooden floor on little mats and towels. And this guy took us through a guided imagery alpha meditation experience. And everybody in that room was in tears. Wow. So it wasn't just me. It was do, a really powerful think, moment. I, I, I have a habit of just asking things as they come. So do you, do you think that you then create that? Or is there a path that we follow that's preordained to some extent? And you're and we're just we're just well, finding that through different mechanisms, different experiences. I I think it's a little of both. I think there's the human will matches the divine design, as they say. Mm. 
because I, I certainly fantasize about being an international sex symbol, but there was no evidence of that ever coming true. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure that has happened in, in certain areas of your life, mate, but we won't get into that. That's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I'd end up with Howard Hughes's position, you know. <laughs> I'm joking and teasing, of course. Of course, of course. Your voids drive your values, and that void in that area is probably driving that delusion. <laughs> but I think because I had such a void with learning, I think after listening to him speak, a deep, deep, deep desire to want to become intelligent and learn how to read and write properly and spell and speak properly emerged that night. I used to have to have my surf buddies read to me. In fact, I still have a friend that remembers reading to me when I was 16 years old. He used to read surfer magazine to me because i could look at the pictures but reading it was a lot some of the words i knew because you pick them up from surfing but some of them i didn't and i used to say i love the way you read can you read that to me wow. he goes uh okay i've but, got that quote actually in front of me because when i did the breakthrough experience with you it was the one thing i wrote down i've got it right here it's been here ever since i did it a few years back um you said your purpose is the most efficient and effective pathway to fulfilling the greatest amount of voids with your highest values. Yes. Which is, I mean, I, that, that transformed a lot of things for me personally, because I didn't quite understand the association between that. But if I look back on things that I've created, things that have appeared, it's been, it's come from voids. It's come from things yeah. that were either very painful or things that I, I experienced that I have almost had my whole life, trying to be able to understand or solve? Well, the perception of loss of that which you seek or the perception of gain of that which you try to avoid generates voids that drive value. Mm. And the highest value is the most objective and the most neutral and has the least amount of subjective bias interpretation of reality. So that's the one that the highest value is the most significant thing an individual can pursue and fulfill. I wow. try to tell people that every talk I do, but I've been studying values 45 of the 50 years I've been teaching. <laughs> do you learn, do you find that a lot of those voids are created when you're younger or it does not matter? Um, I don't want to say that it's limited to that because there's certain people that in later life initiate them, but it's common. And that's, it's kind of like a teratogen <clears throat> A, a, a chemical compound that's toxic. If you're a single cell, you know, you have the, the sperm and the egg unite, and you make a little diploid zygote, the very first cell, yeah. and you get exposed to a toxin, the entire body is affected. But later on, if you get that toxic material, only certain cells might be affected because they're differentiated. Yes. Well, the same thing in life, the earlier the life, the more impactful something the trajectory can become. Yeah, that makes sense. So I don't want to say it's limited to that, but I would certainly say that it is impactful. Those formative years are very impactful. And I had my formative years in a learning challenge. Not, I could throw a baseball. My dad used to sit with me and we used to stand across from each other and I would throw a ball in, in a glove and he'd catch it and then he'd throw a ball and I'd catch it. And every time we did that successfully 10 times, we both moved back one step. One, one of our feet, our little feet. 
And then we'd practice it again until we were literally three yards and literally a hundred yards almost away from each other. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I got to be really good at throwing. And so I, I could learn how to do kinesthetic throwing, but just not reading, writing, speaking, but sports and, and kinesthetic work, I was pretty good at. So I didn't have a lack of capacity there. I just did it with the reading and writing areas. And that was the void. I remember um, listening to you speaking about this in a bit more detail. And I believe there was a point where you went to this experience and then you spent three weeks with this, this gentleman. And before he had to take off somewhere, California, I think you said, um, he gave you an affirmation that you still say to this day. Every day. Do you want to share that? Yeah. Uh, after that night, uh, Paul Bragg said that those of you who would like to join me um, each morning, I have a class where I do a presentation and we do exercise and then we drink water and then we have some fruit and we have a discussion. And I thought, I'm doing that. I mean, I literally hitchhiked from the other side of the island over to where he was to just to meet with him. And for three weeks, I was learning everything I could from this guy and keep up with him. Most of the people in his class were 50, 60, 70, and 80-year-olds because he was up there in his 80s. And I was, at that time, 17. And then finally he says, well, I'm going to, to Mount Shasta and going to Santa Barbara, and I'll, I will hopefully see you again in the future. And all of a sudden, my kind of heart kind of sunk because I'm thinking, well, I'm feeling like I'm making some progress with this guy character. He's really cool to be around. And all of a sudden, he's leaving. I'm like, ooh. So I waited till everybody left, and then I walked up to him, and I said, Mr. Bragg, you said that night three weeks ago at the Sunset Recreation Hall at the Waimea Bay that whatever we decided, whatever we saw in our vision that night is going to become our destiny and our reality. And he said, that's right, young man. And I said, well, sir, I, I saw myself speaking and being a teacher, and sir, I don't know how to read. I don't know how to write. I got a speech impediment and I've been told I would never go very far or mount anything. And he said, is, is that the only problem young man? I said, no, sir. That well, yes, sir, I guess. And he said, that's not a problem. And then he put his hand on my shoulder and he says, I want you to say this one statement to yourself every single day and never miss a day for the rest of your life. And if you say it sooner or later, the cells of your body will tingle with it. And so will the world. I said, yes, sir. And he, he said, say, I am a genius and I apply my wisdom. And he made me say it over and over again until my eyes closed and I kind of inculcated that. And then, then he patted me and he says, don't ever miss a day. Don't forget that. Say that every single day. So I started saying that every single day. And I remember hitchhiking back to the my tent that I was living at, at the time. And I was hitchhiking and nobody was picking me up. And I'm thinking, what the hell is a, hitch a, a genius hitchhiking for? Right. And I, I thought this is, I didn't believe it. <laughs> I didn't even know what a genius really was. I had the misinterpretation of it. I didn't really know what a genius was to ask my mom. What exactly is a genius? She said, people like Albert Einstein and Da Vinci. I said, well, then get me everything you can get to learn about those guys. I want to, I want to learn about them. But I said that. And I said that every day, and that's over 50 years, I've been saying that, 50 years and four months. And 
two years later, after me saying that every single day, after failing first trying to go back into school and eventually learning how to read with the help of my mom and eventually starting to devour books to try to catch up with everybody else, I was in the library tutoring. Well, I was in the library studying and this whole class came out and surrounded my table. And they said, John, can we, can we study with you? Now that meant everything to me. Somebody asking me to help them moves like a dream. And I was tutoring them on algebra, nothing significant. And as I was doing that, I heard this guy whisper to this other guy that, that damn D Martini, he's a freaking genius. <laughs> when I heard that, wow. I couldn't help it. Tears poured out of my eyes. And I thought, wow, one statement in two years has made one person say, and I, and I, for some reason, when I got that tear in the eye that, that day, I went back to my house that night and I wrote a 23 page affirmation. I still have it. I could show it to you. Wow. 23 page well, against all areas of your life now. All areas. It's how I, it's, it, it was composed and it's been updated into a posthumous biography. Now, how I want to be perceived a thousand years into the future when they read about it. And, but I wrote it out. It's been modified and updated since because I had some delusions in there, <laughs> but I wrote out how I wanted to be perceived because I thought if I said one statement in two years and this could happen, I wonder what would happen if I filled a 24 hour period of nonstop dialogue. So I wrote out enough statements that it would keep me busy for a complete 24 hour minus sleeping time. So that's why I did. So I said, I'm just going to fill my day and, you know, memorize this thing and make that and just run that nonstop in my brain, how I want my life. Because if one could do that, I wonder what would happen if I filled my day that way. Let's, let's delve into this a bit, John. So, so what happened there for everyone listening who thinks this is esoteric or whatever else, you know, from two years from not being able to read to being called a genius and teaching algebra, which is not, you know, you think it's simple, but it's not that simple for some people. What happened? What, what happened with programming? You know, what shifted? Well, when I first left Hawaii, which is a few, not too many months after I met Paul Bragg, I flew to LA and I hitchhiked back to Texas. My parents said, welcome home. First of all, they, they didn't know I was coming home. And they, and uh, my mom mainly, she said, while you're here, your dad and I talked about it. Why don't you take a GED, a general education degree, which is a high school equivalency? Cause I didn't have high school. And um, I said, what do I need to do? He said, well, you have to take this class. I mean, this, this test, if you pass it, you have a high school degree and you could get a job. If you don't pass it, you have nothing to lose. So there's nothing other than sitting and taking a class. So I went down to take this class at the university of Houston, not the class, but the test. And some of the words I could read, most of them I couldn't. So what I did is I closed my eyes <laughs> and I said, I am a genius and I apply my wisdom. And I really got into a meditative state because I'd already been studying meditation and yoga by then. Right. And I just went with a little black and pencil and just put in a little black and dot in one of those four or five options and guessed. 
purely guessed. Multiple choice Just guessing. Guess. Multiple chest guessing. And I friggin' passed that test. I friggin' passed the test. And I now have a high school degree. This so is incredible. This job, is incredible for like. I mean, can I share an experience here quickly, just to segue into this? I think it's interesting because because my background was private equity, financial markets. You get indoctrinated into this world. Very interesting world. I had to break out of that world, but that's a longer story. But when I went and started to explore some of this for the first time, which is not that long ago, about four or five years ago, I was at an event and we were doing a meditation of sorts. And in the state that I was in, in that environment, I had this very, very strange experience where these two words kept getting repeated over and over and over again, right? The two words were trust yourself. And it changed that, that changed my life, that experience. I came back and I quit private equity, started what I'm doing now, changed everything, but I still correlate a little bit with what actually was going on there. Was I can, what was I connecting with my subconscious? You know, you've studied this stuff, <laughs> but obviously that was a message that I needed to hear at that time, which changed everything, which is similar, I think, to, you know, kind of what we're talking about here. But what actually happened there? Whenever you make a statement that is congruent and truly aligned with what your highest value represents, what's truly most meaningful, most important, most inspiring to you, it is absorbed, it is retained, and it's applied. Yeah. And that's that's easy to demonstrate and prove and reproduce. And I've demonstrated that with thousands of young people in learning. And the second you set up a statement that is not polarized and unobtainable, but it is objective and it is attainable. In other words, if I said to, to myself, I am always positive, never negative, that's an unobtainable. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because you're going to have both. If I say that I'm always nice, never mean, it's an unobtainable. But if you say whether I'm nice or mean, whether I'm supported or challenged, whether I feel positive or negative, I know that both of them are simultaneously going on, one conscious, one unconscious, and they're guiding me to my authentic self. Okay. Now you're having a checkup from the neck up and a statement that is congruent with principles that are true and guiding towards what's authentic and what's meaningful to you. So those statements are not only retained, but they're immediately creating an executive function for self-governance in the pursuit of what's meaningful. So I learned that not immediately because I had fantasies and delusions and some of the statements I had initially, but I learned to refine them and polish them up. So some people get access to those types of internal dialogues early and take off some people later and some people get caught in moral hypocrisies that traditions and conventions and mores are indoctrinating that are unobtainable designed to promote guilt for being controlled by organizations that are promoting the, the ideals and i could go into a, a, another no, journey I, I, on that one. I get it and some people never have and i call it the gift now in terms of that experience because it was the first time that I, you know, literally then began to trust myself. It was the message I needed to hear at the time. Right. But I, I see lots of people and they, they reach out to me from this show. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this show and they live in this almost state of fear. 
right? They're doing things, you know, they're testing the boundaries, but they kept getting restricted back or pulled back into a comfort zone and things like that. And it's just fascinating that, you know, I, my experience was I had to kind of get myself into a different place to then, I, I think, feel and trust that I could become more. But what is, what is it about fear? If we, if we just delve into that, why is it that so many people live in fear? Well, I'm going to give you an unorthodox uh, insight. I, 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 uh, I hope that you would. <laughs> most, that most, people, most people at first are shocked by. Fear is not, you know, people have this idea, conquer your fear, get over your fear. Don't let yeah. fear run your life. I think that fear is one of the greatest gifts you got. Because I define fear as a feedback mechanism to let you know that you're pursuing something that's not objective, not congruent, and a bit of a fantasy that needs refining to turn it into a true goal and objective. Mm, okay. So your fear is your friend, and a lot of people are addicted to fantasies, and therefore fear. See, there's a thing called aphilia and a phobia. Aphilia, something you seek. A phobia, something you avoid. Mm -hmm. The amygdala, the subcortical area of the brain, has a nucleus accumbens and a pallidum. And it is seeking and avoiding. Seeking prey, avoiding predator. Seeking something that supports its values, avoiding something that challenges it. Seeking that which sustains life, trying to avoid things that might take life. So that amygdala automatically has philias and phobias. Or fantasies and nightmares or pleasures and pains, whatever you want to use the terms. Yeah. So anytime you set a true objective, it has a balance of pleasure and pain. An objective is neutral. It's balanced. Now, if you get in a relationship and you think you're going to get a relationship when you're infatuated, it's going to give you more pleasures and pains. A day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, you're going to find out that that relationship's got as many pains as it has pleasures. And if you have an event in your life that you think is terrible, a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, you're going to find out that it had blessings that were sitting in there that you didn't see initially. Because at first, you're subjectively biased by your amygdala. And to accentuate prey and predator to seek food and avoid, you know, being eaten. So as a result of it, we distort our reality and get highly polarized. And then we seek the pleasure and avoid the pain. And most people are trapped there and they don't know what a true objective is. But if I'm in a relationship with somebody, it's unrealistic to expect them to be nice, not mean, kind, not cruel, positive, not negative, give, not take, pleasure without pain. The relationship, the longer you do, has a higher probability. The sample size of number of days you're with somebody, the longer you're with somebody, the higher the probability you're going to get both pain and pleasure, mm. support and challenge, kind and cruel. So a true objective is wise enough to foresee with foresight that there's going to be both. And a yep. fantasy, which is learned through hindsight, that you want the pleasure without the pain, which is a small sample size, you might say, probability-wise. Yes. So if I if I take a coin, for instance, let me take, take a coin here, take my gold medal. If I take <laughs> my medal and, and I uh, take a thing and, I, and it's a head and tails here, if I flip it one time, it's going to be 100% heads or 100% tails. If I flip it two times, I might get two heads or two tails, but probably a heads and a tails. But if I flip it 100,000 times, the probability of being exactly 50-50 increases. And as the sample size grows, 
the mean distribution increases in probability. Yep, I get it. So the same thing in life, when you're new at something, you have this fantasy, you're going to get a positive without a negative. You're going to gamble on getting a positive without a negative. And you're going to get this pleasure without a pain. But that's like buying a house and being blind to all the cost that you're going to have. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or getting yeah, yeah. in a fantasy relationship <laughs> and finding out, ooh, it's a fatal attraction. Her name is Bubba, actually, <laughs> or something. So, <laughs> so the real truth is people don't know what an objective is. An objective is something that you mitigate the risks of to calm down the fantasy, to make sure you're prepared for both sides so it's obtainable. And most people have goals that are fantasies, not goals that are objectives. And they keep having anxieties and fears, which are the other pole of the magnet that they're unwilling to embrace. They're unconscious of whispering inside their life, trying to make sure they set a real objective. <laughs> so the, the, the fear is not your enemy. It's your friend. It's trying to guide you to set a real objective and to transform fantasies into true objectives so they're obtainable. Not that, something that's unobtainable. The Buddha that, said the Buddha said the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. And most people do not. And, and we are bombarded in the personal development era with opium. You know, don't have negative thoughts, only think of positive. Don't have fear, only have courage. There is no such thing. No. Every human being has both of those. And until this why, they learn to subject. Is this why? when you see the extremes or just to kind of have some, some examples of obvious ones, like the person wins, you know, the, um, the lottery and loses it very quickly afterwards, or the person um, becomes famous very quickly on a reality TV show. And then God forbid commits suicide or something. You have such an extreme movement either way. Well, positive in this case, potentially, but the, the balancing is the other end, the other side. Is that They're right? Or am I genius? Right. They're simultaneous. So what, what's interesting is Wilhelm Wandt, who is the father of experimental psychology around 1896, uh, talked about simultaneous contrast for sequential contrast. The cortical area, the amino prefrontal cortex, is able to see simultaneous contrast. And the subcortical area, the amygdala, is only seeing sequential contrast. Sequential contrast is I see a positive, but I'm unconscious of a negative. And the reason being is that I need to do that to get my adrenaline going to capture that prey. Mm, or I need okay. to get my adrenaline going to see only the, the negatives without the positive to get rid of the predator. So you need that in survival. But if you want to thrive, you need to see both sides simultaneously and have a real objective. Elon Musk doesn't go to Mars by thinking only positive thinking. He thinks out with engineers, what are the every single thing that could go wrong and how do we prepare for it and prevent it? <laughs> if you want to have a, think of both sides. I was going to say, if you want to have an experience of this, go and do the breakthrough with, with Dr. John, because it's, it's a, it's a yeah. very, I found it very challenging and you push me in the experience because you kind of keep going deeper and deeper and deeper with, with a set of questions until you actually start to see it. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating experience. I'll put it that way. I, I, I must say I view my life when things happen you know, positive things. I know that's not the way to put it, but there's certain things that come that I may not want to experience, right? We can get into that in a, bit, a little bit later. Um, but I also realize that there is the good in that as well. But it takes, it takes, you know, that's not certainly how I was brought up or programmed, right? Well, the thing is, the, the, the moral hypocrisies are the number one thing that undermine achievement. The moral hypocr hypocrisies that you've been taught, most people have been taught most of their life, 
you know, be nice, don't be mean, be kind, don't be cruel, be positive, don't be negative, be up, don't be down, be successful, don't be failure, be generous, don't be stingy. All these one-sided worlds don't exist. Alistair McIntyre kind of woke me up on that in his history of ethics and showed that these were used by religions and politicians to promote mm. guilt because nobody could live by them. And wow. once they have guilt, they make all, they do what they call brain offloading for decision making, and they're easy to control. Right. Now, Porphyry, Porphyry, the Neoplatonic philosopher in the third century, wrote all about this, and so did Plato. They wrote about it way back in their times. But most people are oblivious to this, and they don't realize that they're programmed by the oh, grandmother, who's programmed yeah. by a mother. And this just goes down, and we're just parroting what we've been told by tradition and convention. Ernest Becker, in his book, that's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, addresses conformity into convention, tradition, and mores, and what these things can do to people. And because of what they do is make you think like, well, I'm supposed to be up, never down. And if I'm down, I feel bad. And I'm what supposed is to be that? successful, never fail. I get and that. that I get sets that. you up for something. What does that do to a person? So, so one of the things I was interested in exploring with you while we're chatting today is can that, can that sort of, that stress, you know, that sort of negative emotion manifests itself physically in people? Does it start to cause illness and ailments? Absolutely. Whenever you perceive something that you think is supporting your values, that you represent as prey in your brain, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is anabolic, and it wants to rest and digest, and it wants to consume. And anytime you have something that challenges you, you get the sympathetic system, which is the fight or flight mechanism. Yeah. And both of those create acetylcholine or norepinephrine. And those transmitters, first messengers are called, go to a cell wall to a little proteoglycan receptor. They activate a second messenger, cyclic GMP or AMP, which activates phosphatase or kinase, which activates eventually... Uh, acetylation or methylation on the DNA and histones, which affect protein transcriptions, which is structural and functional proteins, enzymes, proteins on cell walls, proteins inside, uh, you know, production inside the cell. And so your cell is responding to your perceptions. Now, I've, I've tracked this down since I was in my tw early 20s. I wrote a book on how perceptual illusions affect cell physiology. Way back at 23. Wow. So, this, so this stuff, like regardless of nutrition, all those sort of things you put in your body, it's having the emotional context of this stuff is having a physical impact. Absolutely. And, it, and it's creating epigenetic alterations, which are stored as long as you have subconsciously stored those misperceptions in your mind. Every time you see sequential contrast, pain without pleasure or pleasure without pain, you're creating illness. Oh. And I'm going to, I'd like to go off on a tangent for a second. I hope you yeah, don't please mind. Do. No, that's no, fine. Go for it. <laughs> the, the banking, the banking industry, consciously or unconsciously, there's some of the people in it don't even know half the time. The banking industry way back a hundred years ago, most found out that the fastest way to get people to build the bank is to get people in debt, right? Borrow money. Well, think about it. If they get a mortgage for a house, if they get a car to drive to that house and they get you a credit card to buy it in a mall, to go in a mall to buy things for convenience, if they promote suburbial living where you have to have a car to, to, to commute and you have to have a house to commute 
and you need a mall to go and buy things, then they've got a credit card, they've got a mortgage, and they've got a car payments that keep people in bondage for the rest of their life. Now, what they do is on the credit card, they give you the opportunity to buy something immediately gratifying. Mm. And then 30 days later, you get the pain. And they don't, they let that drag out by making minimum payments on it. And so what you do is you separate pleasure from pain. And anytime you do, you are automatically activating the amygdala and getting more addicted. So people get further in debt and more addicted to consumer and live vicariously through other people's brands instead of the same feeling if they go out and buy in cash, what happens? When people buy in cash, they buy with foresight. They don't buy with impulse because they have the pain immediately on the spot. Well, exactly. So exactly. simultaneous, <laughs> simultaneous pain and pleasure in the brain activates the executive center where you have foresight, thought, and you have you think out, what do I do? I really is this really priority? But if you separate pain from pleasure, you'll impulse. And the banks knew the psychology of this and knew that they would become more fortunate and more people be more indentured slaves by by automatically promoting suburbia living and long distance oh. driving. Wow. When you see it, you can't unsee it, right? <laughs> you know, in terms of like, it's obvious. And even back to what you said before about feudal society and control. But, but what impresses me about it, or maybe surprises me about it, is how understood some of the thinking was back hundreds of years ago. You mentioned Plato, yeah. for example. <laughs> like, you know, this was a known thing. So it, it's, it's kind of clever if it's not manipulative, if it's not this, right? Well, Thales, one of the earliest Greek philosophers, cornered the olive oil market. He, he made a fortune on the olive oil market when everything was having a disaster. He bought up all the oil, the olive oil uh, the companies and cleaned up on it. So he was a, he was a, the broker of brokers at Thales back in 700, you know, BC almost, six to 700 BC. <laughs> the, the value of reading 30,000 books. Here we go. What I'd like to do as we, um, as we start to get towards the end of this fascinating conversation, which I could continue to do over multiple episodes, I must say, um, Dr. John, is I want to kind of get into some practicalities if we can here, right? Because people have heard us talking about this. There might be some some light bulbs going off for them. Certainly this idea was we talked about the, the, the pleasure and pain existing in the same, in the same paradigm, the same thought, where, where did we start here? So if someone's here and they're going, you know what, I, I want to start to lean into this a bit more. I want to kind of start to explore how I'm feeling. I want to move towards a life that I can start to design myself. Where do they start? Anytime you fill your day, with the highest priority actions that are most congruent with what you value most in your highest values, highest priorities. The blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain and you are highest in probability with spontaneous action. So you're going to more likely walk your talk mm -hmm. and set a limp your life. You're going to achieve more. Your confidence is going to go up. Your self-worth is going to go up. Your belief in what you say you're going to do will go up. Your leadership skills will go up. And every time you do that, the space and time horizons expand to give yourself permission to have a bigger vision. You also activate this medial prefrontal cortex, which activates the V5, V6 area of the occipital cortex, and you see a vision. You also spontaneous act and execute the strategic planning capacities you have in that area of the brain, because that's where strategic capacities are, planning. And you also have self-governance fibers with glutamate and GABA transmitters that stop the amygdala from distracting you with impulses and instincts. 
So now you have self-governance, self-mastery, leadership, expanded vision, expanded uh, capacities to organize and perceive and act, and to be able to break things down into bites, to be able to act incrementally. And people who fill their day with high-priority actions that inspire them are less likely to fill up their day with low-priority distractions that don't. So that's the place to start, to identify what you really, really, truly value, not what you think it is, not what you fantasize, not what you think it should be, but what your life demonstrates it truly is. And you can go on my website and help determine that because I've got a complementary value determination process there. But if they do that and they prioritize that and start living by priorities, incrementally, day by day, you're going to see a transformation in your life. That's the, the highest priority thing I could tell somebody to do is to identify what you value and stick to highest priorities. Anytime you're doing the highest priority thing, your self-worth goes up and your capacities go up. And anytime you don't, you're, you're, it's going to go down. The second thing is when you meet somebody, don't be fooled by facades. There's nobody worth putting in pedestals. There's nobody worth putting in pits. Everyone's worth putting in the heart because they can teach you something about yourself because whatever you see in other people you admire or despise are reflections of things you're too humble or too proud to admit you have, but you actually have. Wow. So instead of envying them and trying to imitate them and being a cat trying to swim like a fish and, and feeling like it's self-depreciated, uh, you know, sabotage or whatever, go and find out whatever you admire in them. Where do you have it in you? Where do I display and demonstrate that behavior and discover where it's inside you? Because at the level of the essence of your true being, nothing's missing in you. But the level of this, the existence of your false being, your personas, you might say, which are the ones that are involved in personal development to integrate into ontological being, that the personas are perceiving that they're too proud or too humble to admit what they see in other people and they're caught in judgment. And that's where the amygdala is. The amygdala assigns valency and judgment to things and causes you to seek or avoid and distract instead of being present. So prioritizing your life and, and whatever you see in other people, look within yourself. Just look within yourself and, and don't envy somebody and don't put down somebody. Go and reflect and find that. I went through the Oxford Dictionary 38 years ago and went through every possible trait a human being can have. And I found every one of them in me. Nice, mean, kind, cruel, honest, dishonest, uh, you know, considered, inconsiderate. I have every trait. Nothing's missing in me. I'm not a hero. I'm not a villain. I'm a combination of the two simultaneously. When I realize that, I'm not, not distracted by judgments and I'm focused on my mission. Your mission is an expression of what you value most. And giving yourself permission to follow that and go after that. You know, everybody wants to make a difference, but you can't make a difference fitting in. And you're going to fit in when you subordinate to the moral hypocrisies and judge people through them. So on you're that, going to stand out on the path. On that, on that sort of, so the couple of words you mentioned there. So for, for the first thing really is, the awareness of that, right? So, you, so obviously doing your exercise, which I've done, you create awareness and sometimes it can be not what you think, right? That's, that's a brilliant piece of understanding. But that second word you mentioned was permission, which I, which I see a lot of people, they may have awareness, but they don't give themselves permission to lean into. How do you, how do you advise on that? Is that just a simple, well, you just got to do it, <laughs> right? Right. Or, or are there well, things that can help that? Your self-worth automatically goes up when you live by priority. Permission comes from permittivity in electronics. 
and in physics. And so what you do is you give yourself permission. You permit yourself to enter into a new level of transmission in your life. Primitivity is the ability to penetrate through resistance, you might say, and come out and come out on a new paradigm. Yes. So permission, giving yourself permission is able to permeate the obstacles on your mission, basically. It's called, it's like saying I have now admission into a new broader perspective on life. The broader the perspective, the less you judge things, the more narrow the perspective, the more polarized the judgment, a basic principle of psychology. So from a global perspective, there's an overview effect. You look down on the earth and you go, all those boundaries and all those, this culture and that, that race and that language, all that means nothing to a person on the space station. None of those mean anything because they have the overview effect. So the broader the perspective and permission to have a broader perspective gives you the ability to love people and to see both sides of them simultaneously. And that's where Wilhelm Wundt was saying, that's where self-actualization emerges. That's where self-accomplishment uh, emerges. Your genius is there. Genius is nothing but pursuing challenges that inspire you that you want to solve because you are now capable of confidence in yourself to be able to solve problems. Every time you're living by your highest values, your ability to solve problems and the confidence in your ability to solve problems goes skyrocketing. And when you do, you actually want to contribute to the world and look for problems vastly that serve vast numbers of people and solve them. And that's where genius is born and creativity and innovation and original thinking emerge. So prioritization is probably the biggest things and being willing to delegate lower priority things. Most people are afraid to let go of things. You know, I just teach, research, write, and travel. That's it. I'm useless everywhere else. I've delegated everything. <laughs> yeah. well, I, even have, I even have a, a clock changer. Believe it or not, I have a clock changer because I'm moving around on my ship in different time zones. And I have a person that comes in and changes my clock for really? me. Really? Really? that. You did. Got, this is this is where you um you you, you kind of tore me. I was going to say tore me and you and you and you ass. But I remember when I was in the breakthrough with you, I was talking to you about this, and I was saying, oh, I've got this business, blah 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 blah. And you said to me, right? You said you've just got to delegate everything. Just the stuff that you're finding painful, just don't do it, right? <laughs> which which I have since done. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing, right? Is like even though even though people kind of. And it comes back to my trust yourself thing. Even though people know that there's this, this bigger thing they can be doing that's going to light them up, it's going to um, allow them to play a different game and, and fulfill their potential, some of them still don't take that, that step. You know, or, and, you know, for me, like I'm trying to draw back to, you know, the, the affirmation that you had, you know, when you met Paul and, you know, th there are some things that we can do, isn't there, that allows us to make that step maybe more, I would say more comfortable but allows us to have the, the, the confidence and the courage to actually take it. Well, there is an action step that I learned from Alec McKenzie that I, I can share that was, is gold if they, if they want to take it and run with it. Do it. So, it's a simple thing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm 27 years old. I just opened up my practice, you know, put my shingle out and I was, I want to be a teacher, healer and philosopher and travel the world and teach. That's that was my dream. I studied natural healing and opened up this clinic. And I was doing everything. I didn't know anything about business. I was doing everything. You know, I was ordering supplies, doing bank payroll, you know, whatever, you know, reconciliations. I mean, I was doing everything. And, and I went to 10 years of college to be a clinician and a teacher, not, a, not to do all that stuff. And I was frustrated. I said, this is not what I envisioned being graduating and doing. And I just, this is not working. So I went over to the Walden's bookstore 
and I went through the books and I found a book on the time trap by Alec McKenzie. And I started browsing. I said, this is the book. And I went there and I devoured the book. And from the book, I did this one exercise. So whoever's listening out there, get a big piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, get a piece out right now and draw five lines on it. So you have six equal space columns. Take the time to do that. And in the far, your left, I guess my, my, my left is your right, but on this side, on the left side of the column, write down every action you do in a day. From the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed, over a three-month period, every single thing you do, and do for the first time in your life the most honest evaluation of what you spend your time doing. And I mean, not vague generalities like marketing. No. I need the, the real action steps, the little action steps that you're doing moment by moment through the day. Like we're videotaping you on a drone and we're now watching. And every time you change something else, answer the phone, do this, write up a paperwork, whatever it is, we're documenting everything. We're writing everything you're doing down in a day. And go and do a true, honest, introspective, reflective investigation of who you are, what you do, so you can get past your lives. Because I guarantee you, I've been doing this a long time, 41 and a half years, and people are liars about what they do. So <laughs> write down what you actually do. And I guarantee you, by, as you do it, you're going to be sitting there going, boy, am I majoring in minors and minoring in majors. You're going to see it. So that's the first step. And do write down everything you might do day and night, except for your sleep, maybe. And then divide it into personal and professional. The things that you're at home, there's a lot of stuff you're doing there that's not priority and also at work. Make that list. Once you finish that list, which is going to be multiple pages, I said get a page out, but get a pile of pages. In column two, after the daily action steps, how much does each of those action steps produce per hour income? Whoa, that's a hit. That's mm. a that's a not that's like it sucked in the stomach with a big fist by by Sylvester Stallone or something. When I did that exercise, I realized a bunch of things that 70% of what I was doing was zero. Wow. So that is the punch. Zero. <laughs> Then I realized that me going out and speaking in front of a group of people and engaging them in coming into patients was the most valuable thing I did, which is none of which I was trained in school for. My actual clinical expertise was only making about 1200 to 1500 an hour when I went out and speak. And if I spoke to 60 people and got five new patients, that was $15,000 worth of business generated. And I thought, whoa, if I'm stuck in my little cubicle all day long, I'm going to be force myself to limit the income. I may be fulfilled doing the clinical, but I'm going to be limiting my income. And I had a real wake up call there. Wow. And so I basically put the dollar value next to everything that I did. And I was shocked. I was doing reported findings. I was doing this. I was doing that. Nope. No, I was not charging anything for it. It was fine, but I wasn't charging for it. And then I was doing stuff that was menial. So then when I looked at those, what I was actually generating, because that, that means that I'm caring about another human being enough to be able to be in sustainable, fair exchange with them and generating an income. If I'm not generating an income, I'm not doing anything that cares about anybody, apparently. 
because it's not generating anything, not really serving people where they're willing to say, hey, that's a value to value to me, a value. I'll pay for that. So when I went through that and made that list, I reprioritized that list, that entire list according to what produced the most, which was speaking. Yep. Because I could leverage myself through speaking. That led me to leverage in TV and radio and movies and everything else. And then I was down to things that were zeros and there was 70% zeros. <clears throat> so that moment I did that, I decided I'm charging for some of the things I'm doing. I've been devaluing it. And I asked, why did I not charge for that in the first place? Because I injected the values of people that I looked up to that I thought knew. They didn't do it, so I must not do it. I was parroting instead of thinking. Mm. Whoa, that was a big eye-opener, too. Then I realized I just made myself different than all the rest of the people. And I started charging for things that people weren't charging for because it was my time, and I was devaluing myself the other way. And as long as you devalue, so will the world. And until you value, don't expect the world to. And don't expect people to treat you anything other than what you treat yourself. If you devalue yourself, they're going to treat you that way. So that was number two. That column two was an eye opener. Then came number three. How much meaning do each of those have on a one to 10 scale? The ones that are tens are things that I spontaneously love to do. I can't wait to tap dance to work, as Buffett says. The ones that are ones are things that I need to be externally motivated to do. And I procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate on it. So I went and I redid the entire thing on a one to 10 scale and prioritized it and then looked at what was most meaningful and most productive and where do they overlap? And I'll be darned if it wasn't the most meaningful to me was going out and sharing a message that inspired a group of people that made a difference in their life. And that was also the one that produced the most. The <laughs> second most was actually going in there and doing clinical work with people and I found that the, the third most, that was third most. The second one was, was training doctors on how to be clinicians and leveraging through other doctors. So the first one was speaking. The second was training. The third one was clinical. But you, but back, to your, back to your values, this is, this is aligning with your values as well. Absolutely. And then I basically prioritized the clients. I went through every one of my clients, which are the ones that are most meaningful and most productive. And I realized that I have to prioritize my clients and qualify them if I want a quality practice. After I got through that, I already knew a lot about where I was going and what needed to be done. The next column was how much does it cost to delegate that? And I don't mean just their salary. That's just a, that's one third of the cost, one fourth of the cost. But the paper clips, the the space usage, the training, the insurance, the parking, and you know the, the all the equipment, depreciation schedules, everything. So I put my best estimate of it on every one of those. What's it cost to have that done? That was eye-opening. And then I took and looked at where the spreads were between the ones that produce the most power versus cost the most. And I prioritized that list according to spreads. So Did I you eliminate a lot as well? Was there a lot of elimination? Oh, yeah. I had stuff that I was doing that really didn't produce. And didn't really serve people. And in, in the things that I was delegating, I, I don't even need to do that. But I was doing it because so-and-so did it. Yeah, and I, I was subordinating to them. Okay? I was passing on tradition down. And that's where people get stuck in tradition. There's no innovation. Yeah. The next one was how much actual time I'm actually spending on it per day. So I can hire in a job description the real use of time. And the last one was final prioritization through the columns. 
And then I layered all of them. I layered all of them in 10 layers. And I put a job description together on the lowest layer, the second lowest layer, et cetera. And then I started hiring. I was 27 when I did this. 18 months later, myself and one assistant in a 970 square foot little office was now a 5,000 square foot office with five doctors, 12 staff members, with me only doing the highest priority three or four things. And I delegated the rest, trained them all up. And I was now speaking, generating clients, had my own TV show, my own radio show, was training doctors to do all the clinical work. And I was working and hanging out with the movers and shakers, the highest quality clients, and leveraging their businesses as patients. And my income was tenfold, tenfold net with less effort. Boom. So all I can say is people say, <laughs> well, people always tell me, and say, well, you can afford to delegate. No, I became a wealthy because I delegated. Well, you, you intentionally designed it as well with the right di yeah. diagnostics, the right kind of, you know, understanding what you like to do. I mean, that's the best articulation I've heard, John, of, of why we have to delegate, right? Like incredible, yeah. incredible. And if also you, the result. If you don't delegate, if you don't delegate, there's no way you can live an inspired life. Not no. going to happen. Well, I love what you said beforehand. If, if you don't feel your- too many things you have to do. Well, if you don't fill your day up with the things that inspire you, as you said, you know, it's going to be filled up with other people's things. Right. And, you know, and I've, you know, we've all everybody's, been there. <laughs> everybody's projecting their values onto you and trying to get you to live in their values. Nobody's dedicated to your fulfillment except you. Time Love to that. wake up, realize that. Well, we, we are at time. John, that was awesome. I had I had about four other themes to cover, but of course we didn't cover those because we had so much fun on the rest of it. Um, but I just want to say I just want to thank you personally for the impact that you've had on sort of my journey and the things that I'm working on and working towards, and my friends that we mentioned previously. Um, you know the way that you approach this this world, this subject on human behaviour is just you know off the charts. And um, and thank you for that. And I know that our conversation today is going to help a lot of people listening to this show as well. So. Where can people reach out to you, John, if they want to learn more about your programs, you yourself, or anything like that, if they want to come and partake in some of those? All they have to do is go on drdmartini.com. That's it. If they go to Dr. Dmartini uh, show on YouTube or drdmartini.com on my website, uh, they're going to have to join a Buddhist group because you're going to need to believe in reincarnation to be able to read everything that's on there. There's so much on there. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm just joking. I know. I know. You you are. Well, what I am going to say is I'm going to, I'm going to call out a couple of actions. So one is definitely take the values assessment that's on your website. Cause it's awesome. Just to give you that awareness we spoke about. And I got a lot out of the breakthrough experience. And also there's a book on that as well, which I'm holding up here. Um, if you want to kind of start to understand, particularly that bit in the middle today where we spoke about, you know, what sits at the center between sort of pain, you know, pleasure, et cetera, the breakthrough experience is an awesome thing to go through to learn more about that. So Dr. John Martini, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. And, and, uh, oh, there's a, one last thing I would love to say, if you don't mind, uh, okay. this week, I have another book coming out called the resilient mind. Just, it just comes out. It's coming out this week called The Resilient Mind. Excellent. The Resilient to, Mind. Yeah. How to not let the external world interfere with your internal dream. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, we'll make sure that we link that uh, to all good bookshops and things like that so people can look into that as well. Thank you very yes. much. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you.
Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.